cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net's podcast on quant finance. Mauro Cesar here speaking. Today, my guest is Gordon Lee, Senior XVA and Capital Quant Analyst at UBS in London. Hi, Gordon. Welcome back. Hi. Good, good to be back. Yeah, indeed. You were here a couple of years ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I hope I hope this this time will be the end of the pandemic. Uh, today, the pretext for this podcast, not that we need a pretext, but uh, is the paper that uh, you co-authored and we just published in Risk, dynamically, dynamically Controlled Kernel Estimation, in which you introduce a technique to calculate conditional expectations. Uh, first of all, this is not a solo effort. Uh, you no. have some co-authors, no. right? So one of them um, is one of the students um, in the um, college that I um, supervise in. So her name is Nancy, Nancy, um, Nancy Jeng. Um, and then obviously there's Nikolai and Jörg uh, as well, um, who work with me on uh, side projects like these. Um, so, you know, it's a joint effort for, for, for the whole thing. So what is the motivation behind this work and uh, what is the problem you're addressing? Well, the, the motivation is when you get bored at home in COVID and you've got nothing else better to do, <laughs> then you start thinking about, hmm, what else can I do? So that's that's probably the motivation, number one. But I guess, I, I mean, we talked about it a bit earlier. I think, you know, people's, like even in, in you know, um, submission of papers actually gone up quite high this year, right? Or last yeah, year. Yeah, true. People just have nothing else to do. It's like, oh, let's go home and like think of something else to do. <laughs> but it does um, solve a real problem, right? It solves a real problem. It solves a real problem in a kind of a nice way, in in the sense that um, so so give a bit of background on what he's trying to solve is a lot of the in the past or in the current more precisely XVAs requires pricing of derivatives in the future under different state. That's a kind of a crucial part of any kind of XVA calculations. Well, what it turns out is that this kind of um, expectation is really required in general for like hedging strategies, like if you want to work out like, you know, some of the things, uh, you know, this hot topic about like computer-based, like, you know, uh, AI-based deep hedging techniques and all stuff, half of it is you know, working out how much is this worth today and then what strategy you want to do in the future. So this kind of conditional expectation is really kind of at the heart of, I would say, modern computational finance. But we take it just one step back and we just use the, um, we use the XBA computation as a start and, and think, well, obviously we're also inspired um, by work that people like um Antoine Savine and Brian Huger did in differential machine learning, where they use the um, differentials um, directly. Um, but on the other hand, there's some surveys, I think it's one um, that, that, that I saw, that says that even though it's well known in the industry, practically not that many institutions actually use automatic differentiations and joint differentiation in their stack. because. It takes time, and you have to rebuild your stack, and you know that's not something that every every institution institution can do right away. So, what this kind of um, try to propose is something cheaper that can be retrofitted into an existing pricer, mm-hmm. so you don't have to redevelop everything to have automatic differentiation, um, and give a good and gives a good result. I would say 
then then you know then do you save time you you have less compute costs if you have less compute costs then you save the environment less carbon emissions so it's better for everybody actually okay okay and we'll go into uh, each of those aspects now but uh, so what variables can you uh, use this, te- this technique for which instruments do you mean or variables uh, variables as uh, you calculate the condition expectation of, yeah. of what type of variables any type of variables i mean you usually would pick it for the product that you know you have a derivative for example you have a co-option on on a dying stock um, then you obviously the variable you control is for that stock that's 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 yeah. the basic things like uh that's that's in general that's what you do and the instrument is any instrument that uses a conditional expectation as part of the payoff well I mean, all instruments is a conditional expectations. There are some works better than others. Um, you know, in in real life, most of the like you know XVA computation, majority of the product you see is would be fairly simple. But then, as you go up the curve, it gets more complicated. So, for example, you start to get all the callables. You start to get the knock in, knock out. You start to get like you know vars, mm-hmm. vars, vars, etc. Then, then obviously, then you have to be a little bit careful about what you choose. But in in essence, the variable that you choose to control is always going to be is should be always be fairly obvious what the underlying driver of the derivative is. Okay, so and talking about the technique more specifically, so okay. this this combines uh, three main ingredients like control variant. Yep. Kernel density estimation and yeah. Gaussian process regression. Yes. So, how are the the three combined, and how each of the three contribute to it? Sure. So, so, I'll, so let's you know we'll I'll reorder that slightly, and I have a name for those. Like, so obviously in a in a paper setting, you know we can't put all the nicknames that we give to the numerical techniques that you know love. I mean, surely you have a nickname for your favorite mathematical technique, right? Um, let's say yes (laughs) okay sure so so the first one you start off with the kernel estimates Um, I call it the neighbor okay so let's go through briefly what what the kernel estimates means in case the people here does uh, here you know is not familiar with it so I'm gonna do something that everybody's favorite topic the housing market okay Mm -hmm. so imagine you Miro you you said Gordon I want to find the price of my house okay now let's assume all houses to say you only have one street and mm-hmm. all the houses are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Just bear with me. If this is a mathematical world here. We don't live in the real world, in the math world. So bear with me, okay? So uh, it's finance. We make assumptions. So yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, we made worse. But anyway, um, so we say that the price of the house only depends on the location of your street. So what can you do? Well, you can a simple way of doing it would be just to, you know, plot all the prices of the houses against the locations, right? And then you draw a line for it. So that's linear regression. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then I said, well, according to this line, your house is at ten, um, ten, um, your street, and then the price according to interpolation is six. So that's kind of like um, then you can make it a bit better you can put um, not just a linear you can do a nonlinear regression adding a few more cubic um, square variables into it and that's in essence and or you can chop it up into different part of the street and that's in essence kind of like a quite a uh, standard way that we estimate the price of the houses that's a that method is kind of 
if you go to vendors and streets and all stuff, majority that's what they would do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the kernel method does it slightly differently. So I I like to so go back to nickname. I gave the nickname of kernel um, estimation the neighbor. Mm-hmm. So what the neighbor does is you live in number ten. So I basically I go to numbers five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and I say what's your price, and then I weight the average in such that uh, the closer to is to number ten, I put up higher weights for that price. Um, actually, I do more than that, and then I take this small sample, I do another linear regression on it because that smooths out the error, it reduces the bias, and I use that estimate. So now I can do this and I repeat this for different places in the street. Then I, what I get is a price for the street in a fairly accurate way. So that's the kernel method. Mm-hmm. Now you can ask, well, Gordon, that sounds wonderful. I'm not sure if it's any better than linear regression. You just mentioned it. Uh, and the answer is if you use that on its own, you don't. Um, that, that because basically what it allows you, it, it, it does produce a better point-wise estimate but overall like you know you have to be careful how many samples you take around your house mm. so that's that's a what we call a hyperparameter that you have to be careful of right so on its own it's a reasonable technique but probably you know i wouldn't <laughs> go with my co-authors and write that and say hey just use kernel what we call the kernel local regression and we're done so that in itself is not sufficient so then that's the second technique. So what we need is some kind of interpolation. So then we use something called a Gaussian process regression. So Gaussian progression is a um, Bayesian um, regression technique. So I want to tell you something very interesting about Bayes. Do you know anything about the reference Thomas Bayes? Yeah. You do? Yes. But do you know that he used to live in the same town as I do? That you didn't know. Okay. No. <laughs> he, he he was a priest. He lived in Tunbridge Wells. I used to live in Tunbridge Wells a long, long time ago. Not in the 18th century, though, right? I wasn't I wasn't born in 18th century. Just, I knew that. Oh, good. Thank you. And he he published three major pieces of work. He he published the Divine Benevolence, or an attempt to prove that the principal end of divine providence and government is the happiest happiness of his creature in 1731. Not interested in that. Or an introduction to the doctrines of fluxions and a defense of mathematicians against the objections of the author of the analyst. Now that's more interesting because you know what a fluxions is. No, it's the it's calculus basically. Okay. And he was defending Sir Isaac Newton, because when Sir Isaac Newton did it, he was they they were like, "What is this stuff that you're doing? You can't do that." And Thomas Bayes defended him. So that was interesting, but that's not what we're interested in either. The final thing he did was the essays towards solving a problem in the doctrine of chances, and this is what made him famous. I mean, so famous even you heard of heard of him. That's the point, right? <laughs> Not that you know you heard of a lot of things. That's what I'm trying to say, and it's basically saying that you know an event. It's you know any event is not just. Um, based on what actually happens, but also um, based on some external prior belief, and is is the whole thing is what we call a prior belief, like you know, and and what you do, you know, once you have some evidence, what's the posterior distribution that comes out? Now, in modern days, kind of statistics and regression, what we found is that the existence of a prior distribution stabilizes the estimation technique, 
because imagine you're trying to do some auto-sample regression outside and you have no data on there. It's literally heavy dragons, you don't know what it is. And you can fit to any numbers. What's a prior distribution and what Gaussian process regression allows you to do, it stabilize when you do a line through it, it stabilizes the 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 regression and it makes it in essence sometimes what we found is that it's smoother. Now certainly there's nothing stopping you just do a normal interpolation technique. You can just do, you just draw a line through it, you can do a linear or a cubic interpolation, you can do splines. It doesn't kind of, if you be brutal about it, it kind of doesn't matter. We just found that while we're looking through different methods, we just found that, you know, using a Gaussian process regressions, just a little bit smoother, just a little bit more predictable, uh, you know, you don't need to worry about it as much, you know, for it to blow up. You, it just behaves itself a lot better. So that's why we choose it. But let's be clear, fundamentally, you can use any inter interpolation techniques that you want. Okay, so so I call that the referent. So GPR, Gaussian process regression, is the referent. Okay? Okay, and then we have the third ingredient. Oh, I call it the trader. The trader. The, why is the, that? The trader. So it, it goes back to a control variate technique. So mm -hmm. what is a control variate technique? You're trying to estimate the conditional expectation, as you said, right? So what, there's a well-known control variate technique. Say you can estimate what you want to do. If you add another estimate that is related to um, the estimate that you want to go. So for example, in this case, I want to estimate an option price in the future. But if I also estimate at the same time, and that's what we've done, the forward price of the stock, subtract the expectation, if I do it together, I can actually reduce the variance of my estimates. So this, it's, it's fairly, you might, if you haven't done any statistics, it kind of sounds like magical, right? So, so basically, let's repeat that, is if you want to estimate a particular statistics, if you add times a um, scaling factor to be determined that minimizes the variance times the difference between your known estimates and the sample um, or statistics estimates of it, you reduce the estimation variance of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is this is the key. Now, the now why is now mirror your next question? I can see in your eyes. Why is it called a trader then? Well, it turns out that if you have like a stock option, for example, that it turns out if you would live in the Black Shows world, let's say, um, then the the beta estimates that I talked, so the scaling factor estimates, turns out to be that at the delta of the option. The reason is simple, because if you look work, work in a pricing, it's a risk-neutral world. A risk-neutral world, all it means is that the trader always hedge, you assume, right? Well, if they hedge and they're delta-neutral, etc., then it's such that the price of the options change according to the delta, mm -hmm. okay? And then why you chose risk-neutral is because you've minimized the risk. Actually, it's more than minimize the risk. You have eliminated the Absolutely. risk. Yeah. Well, that's ex if I remember what I said about <coughs> control variance, it's exactly the same thing. So it turns out to minimize the risk, all you have to do is estimate the delta. So now that's why this control variance technique is called the trader, right? Uh, but this gives you two ways of doing it. 
you can do it in the paper. What it shows is that it turns out that there is there is a very well-known formula, looks like a regression formula, and you can estimate that locally using the kernel estimations for, for what the scaling factor to be. So at point-wise, this delta changes, right? But the good thing is I don't need to estimate this directly, like say using automatic differentiation. There's a statistical technique using the kernel estimate, I can do that. And that's the good thing because if you don't have a all singing or dancing automatic differentiation technique, you can still estimate it to make it better. So that's that's key point number one. If you have access to automatic differentiation and all that stuff, then you can estimate that value directly using kernel estimation, but using the um, payoff derivatives. So either way works for this technique. Once you put it together, then you, you do the points of kernel estimation for each point. You draw a line using the Gaussian process regression. You add the, um, you change the regression to a payoff plus a control variate, which is delta times the differences of your underlying or the future price. Then that's where the whole thing comes together and actually makes it a lot more efficient. Okay. And is this easy to implement? So you make it easy now, but is it actually it's easy to implement? It's fairly easy. There's no, there's no, um, I mean, if you were to do it, rewrite it from scratch and you don't have, I mean, the only thing I would say is slightly tricky, but it's not really that tricky. It's probably the Gaussian's process regression. I mean, you can write one yourself from scratch instead of whatever. But as I said, if that doesn't, you know, float your boat, you can always use a linear, like use a normal interpolation technique. That's perfectly fine as well. So you see an argument for replacing the standard least square Monte Carlo. It's, with not, this it's not a replacement, it's an enhancement. So it would be on top of? Yeah, you just change right. it. Like you literally mm -hmm. like, like you instead of like, you know, you take all the payoffs and you know, do a linear regression, you just, the ingredients remain the same. Yeah, you just take all your payoff at, 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 at maturity. Um, you look at the state variables that you have and the, and the outcome it remains the same, it is a interpolation of some kind. I see. And uh, so you say in the paper that this approach is model agnostic and data driven. Can you expand on that? So what it means is that kind of any, it doesn't have to be black, like I mentioned like black shows and all stuff, but it doesn't have to be. So what uh, we've found is that, you know, we've applied like Heston model or rough Bogomi, it still works very well. So, <laughs> so, so therefore it's not like you take this um, interpolation techniques and like, you know, oh, you, but it only work for a certain kind of model. It doesn't. But then that's also true of like least square Monte Carlo in general anyway. So, so yeah, so that's, yeah. that's true in general of these kind of techniques. And in terms of performance, how do you measure it? I guess there's a, the computational side and yes. the precision's accuracy side. So, so we benchmarked it, accuracy, we benchmarked it against closed form formulas in terms of accuracy. And also we benchmark against least square Monte Carlo in general. Um, so that's those two are the uh, key benchmarks that we've done. And then what we found is that um, by using the techniques um, for options and in some way, you know, more linear products, just using this, you can reduce the amount of paths you need to a convergence. Uh, as a toy example, actually, you know, just as I have like, I, I got, again, this product I didn't mention in the paper, but using this and uh, um, using Sobel numbers, et cetera, I got it converged using 100 paths to something reasonable. Hmm. So, so obviously I didn't say that because obviously you never use it. That's just, let's be clear, that's just a toy example. But 
you wouldn't be able to do that like you know using a normal least square Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the idea is that hopefully you know if people like you know obviously there's a lot more you need to do but into production but it's a start of thinking how can you reduce the amount of time that you need to, to compute these things because ultimately that's the challenge uh, for a lot of the um, techniques even like you know in machine learning or, or, or x-ray computation is computational time like how do you it's a com it's always a combat like how do you do all this stuff in the fastest amount of time speed time computation is the enemy is the enemy so to speak that we're trying to win against okay uh, you mentioned also in the paper that there's um uh, let's say an obstacle with the high dimensionality yes um is that future uh, future expansion of uh, of this study uh, absolutely definitely so is this pro- a solvable problem you think i f- i think it's is interesting because it's not nece- i don't think it's necessary going to be so for low dimension i think like if you do a two or three d thing um like rainbow options or things like that we've done i think you know it still works pretty well if you have a all the time you have a 10 dimensional worth of basket or something like that i think that's going to struggle but then i would have to say that i don't don't know many mm. other techniques that would make it better i mean the only exception i think that would make it better would be to actually work with the pathwise pathwise derivatives directly i think that would be the only way to make it work better so that would be something that i think like using the kernel method you know just directly on the price would struggle a little bit so 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 you know you'll probably have to incorporate like you know the differential machine learning etc to make it better but thankfully uh in in the industry in general these are not common things that affect the xva's calculation too much okay let's change topic now sure. uh, let's talk about signatures so yeah, it's sure. the mathematical tool for hmm. parsimonious encoding of data to describe them very very briefly uh, we have covered the topic quite a lot in in risk in the past year or two and i know you you're familiar with the topic and you hmm. think it's promising and hmm. uh, it's got potentially interesting hmm. applications one is data generation as yep. we saw in the paper that we published last yep. year uh, by hans buller uh, and others um, where else do you see signatures making an impact at present or in the near future? I think it's still a like ongoing. So, so it, I mean, the cafe with all these kind of techniques is what I mentioned before. Like you remember, like three, four years ago, five years ago, we talk about AAD and things like that as domain industry. So you look at it today. Yes, people are using AAD. There are some very interesting implementations and all stuff. But let's be clear, it's not like oh, now we do anything, everything is AAD. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be the same as signatures. I would say, like, you know, data generation is, is a good one, um, potential um, to go through. I, I think the issues with a pure signature base that doesn't look at the, let's say, the market structure, um, it's going to be more complicated. Um, I think signatures at the moment... Um, kind of you know there's a bit of more work to, to see how can you like you know incorporate some like you know arbitrage free stuff uh, arbitrage free conditions for example like how would you do that and and people are working on it don't get me mm-hmm. wrong uh generation of the inverse of the uh signature is still an issue i think that it needs to be solved in a in a in a, in a fast way um yeah so it's going but i think it's not takes time and you don't see an immediate or soon 
possible application for in, in the XVA space? I don't think so at the moment, I mm. would say. But obviously, never say never. And, you know, I always keep my eye out on this kind of stuff to see if it, it actually works. I, I think uh, the key is what we mentioned in XBA, what ultimately you're trying to do is fast pricing. Yeah. And, and, and currently, and again, I like to be proven wrong, I don't see a immediate way that you can do the signature transform and make the pricing faster. I can see you can price XVA using signatures, but I don't see how you can make it faster using signatures. So, so that's that's kind of the point. Yeah. Let's talk about education. So we have recently uh, published the new edition of the Quant Finance Master Guide. Hmm. Um, one thing we have noticed in the past couple of years is how programs have uh, have added modules on uh, um, machine learning, hmm. coding. Hmm. And that is not surprising, obviously. It's not surprising. Um, but so you are also on that side of yes. the world. You uh, are affiliated with uh, Imperial College. Yes. Uh, and uh, my, my question is, how how do programs combine the addition of these uh, uh, these new models without taking anything away from the fundamentals that have been taught so far? I think there's two points to it, right? So, so the first part is to teach these techniques you know you need a you know these are like you know some of the machine learning techniques is interesting in its own right with its own language not just programming language but i mean you know terms and things like that in mathematics uh and that needs to be taught um i think the the way that that it needs to be taught um to make sure that it's kind of part of computational finance so to speak is that you know, it, these are more philosophical points, and I think um, so. So, you know, Fisher Black and Merton, um, and you know, Miran Scholes, um, kind of like came up with this in the mid seventies, and they toy around for a long time to say how you price an option, and the eureka moments. Because they try many, many different things, right? They say, okay, how, you know, they can tie averages or whatever. Their eureka moments is that if you can get the trader to hedge all the time, then under that world, or what we now call a risk-neutral measure, then the hedged assets must grow only at a risk-free rate. That took the guy, those guys five years to figure out, <laughs> right? Um, now... Once you've done that, what they've done is that they borrow things from the heat equations and, and et cetera. They work backwards and show, hey, this is the, the, the famous Black-Scholes formula, right? Or the Black-Scholes-Merton formula. Because at that time, they didn't have machine learning and things like that, right? So they said they work it out, they use the Black-Scholes formula, they get a closed form. And then from then point onward, it's about tinkering with the same mathematical technique using stochastic models, you know, to 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 drive at the prices, and it makes perfect sense. So now machine learning's kind of turn it on its head, mm -hmm. and says, "I can generate data. I can generate, like you know, um, make mimic what the world is today. I have an option, or a portfolio of options." how do I go about minimizing the variance of the portfolio until it matures? Well, it turns out that it, you, you end up trying to do the same thing and you're trying to work out the best strategy 
um, to to actually make that happen. And under certain assumptions, and this is something that Eco Hyperin like wrote a very 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 nice um, very nice paper called Q Pricer in in Black Shell's World or something like that. I'm I'm sorry, I don't ex- remember exactly the name, but it's a very good paper, and it's also in his book with um, Paul Billicon and Matthew Dixon. Matthew Dixon. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you know they wrote in extensive like how the two are linked. So how how to look at the Blackstone's formula into um, you know into a what we call a Q Q pricing problem, i.e. a reinforcement learning problem. So to, so he shows that the two actually are one and the same. So you can derive the Blackstone's formula, so to speak, from a machine learning problem under the right assumptions. So it's two different way of approaching the world. Uh, and and I think for a lot of of courses, as long as they remember this link and they just look mm-hmm. at oh yeah now here's some machine learning and stuff, they 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 make people understand the context and how it links all together in the world. I think it absolutely has the place in the world to you know, to the courses will be successful. But if they teach it just as an offshoot and not as an integrated sense, I think they'll fail. Okay, and uh, if you take your academic hat off for a second and you uh, go back to um, the employer side okay do you think the teaching is um, preparing students for for the banking world now and um, uh, is it satisfactorily I think for the people who went through the courses and come up with good grades and understand the contents the answer is absolutely yes um, you know, you like as an employer, what you're looking for is people understand why I just mentioned the the whole concept of. So a lot of this, like a lot of people that like we talk to, can you know say, oh yeah, you know risk neutrality, then you do it, blah blah blah. And I was like, but what is risk neutrality? How does that work? Blah blah. And what does it mean in the real world? They sometimes they lack a lot of that context. They look at it from a pure mathematical point of view, not a mathematical financial engineering so to mm. speak point of view and that's that's an issue because then you don't know what you're actually trying to solve so 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 what we found is that you know people who like who come on the courses not not just understand the maths but understand the context the market and what it does they, they fare very good and you know we found that you know people in the top courses majority would understand this kind of stuff but obviously you know if you look at courses in general um i i think you know there's a personal opinion a lot of courses that's like they especially for those that look at math department they just go oh yeah blah 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 you just have to reach neutral and then you just do all this funded maths and i teach you and that's quant finance and that is an issue because they're not understanding what are you actually trying to do i see Let's switch topic for, for the last time. Uh, we're jumping on something closer to your to your uh, office job. Um, so the past couple of years have been very turbulent in terms of uh, credit markets, uh, sectors that have been struggling, uh, exogenous variables like state aid for for some of them to keep them alive. From a, the bank bank perspective, uh, you have some somewhat more difficulties to. Um, Keep yourself safe from uh, mm. credit events. Uh, have, have you witnessed 
fundamental changes in the way uh, CVA and XVA in general uh, have been uh, addressed in the in the past couple of years? I think I think in general what we found now is that since the establishment and proliferation of XVA desk, there's more you find it in the industry in general more folk like there, there's a place of focus for looking at these issues and dealing with it, and I think. It is a testament given the some of the market volatility for better or for worse in the beginning of the year for the last two years that you know banks in general in this area at least hasn't got into like too much financial difficulties um, because of that so so sometimes you know the way that I see is that given what happens and it's not just the XVA desk I think there's also like you know the whole about the capitalizations and which is kind of half to do with XVA, of course, because like you know, uh, XVA is also concerned about capital optimization, etc. Mm. But but the point is that I think it's existence of these structures that we found that as you know, in the industry, like you know, but it's nowhere near as turbulent for those firms than let's say we will be used to ten years ago. Yeah, and I think that represents a change in how the industry is working i would say now are there anything specific about like you know xvas and things like that i think you know it's i think firms in general are using them more and more to like you know manage this kind of stuff in a central basis um but how they do it in general like it really differs from firm to firm i would say but in general, I would say, you know, as a high level, just repeat is, I think because, you know, compared to 2008 and the structure there and, and the structure we have now, the fact that things are pretty calm. In fact, like, you know, after, just after March and markets start to pick up and things like that, you find like, you know, you follow the news and other banks, the bank's been doing pretty well. Yeah. Gordon, thanks very much for joining us today. It's great to hear your ideas and, uh, uh, and your explanation about the paper you just published. Cool. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>